0: His plays may have some of the most evocative, and in some cases provocative, titles in all of recent American theater. Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, Theodora, She-Bitch of Byzantium, Psycho Beach Party, Queen Amarantha, Die, Mommy, Die, and The Tale of the Allergist's Wife. And if that's not creative enough for you, it's worth noting that in most cases, he has played the leading lady in the majority of his many shows. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm pleased to spend the
1: next hour with Charles Bush. Well, it's great to be here. I, you know, I always forget that my titles um, are sometimes a tad bizarre, but they, they <laughs> sell tickets.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, that actually leads me right to the first question because we are – Uh, celebrating the 25th anniversary of your big break, which was Vampire Lesbians of Sodom Mm -hmm. at the Provincetown Playhouse here in New York in the summer of 1985. Mm -hmm. How much of the success of that show do you think was the brilliance of your writing, Mm. the New York Times review, and how much of it was people saw that title in listings and said, that sounds like a show for me.
1: I think goes all of the above, uh, and and I, if I recall, I think we had actually um, some problems with the New York Times about printing that title. It's kind of funny we think back now. It, I mean, I, somehow the word "lesbian" in a title. I mean, I, it seemed. To, huh. I mean at the time in '85, I thought it was it was rather peculiar. It might have just been all all the words. Together, together, yeah, and we even had trouble, I think, with the bank um, establishing a, a bank account for the uh, the company. My, yeah, my well, aunt you can had to name the in. legal company whatever you
0: want. You didn't have to name it the Vampire Lesbians of Sodom Company. Yeah, well, I guess we, we could have did. Ju-
1: Guess we did. <laughs> Just <So> my my <laughs> aunt had, to step, had to step in and give the uh, you know, Hanover Bank a hard time. Huh. Yeah, but looking back on
0: that, I mean, I've read comments that you've said. That, you know, if you'd known what a hit it was going to be, you
1: would have made it longer. I would have made it better.
0: <laughs> it really? I mean, how do you feel about it Oh, now? see,
1: you know, that whole experience has been so bathed in uh, nostalgia for those of us who are still alive from it. Um, Let's rip the soft gel off yeah, of that and so, tell the truth. Oh, gosh. Well, it just uh, – You know, I I tell the story so often and and a friend of mine has criticized me for it. uh, uh, But, you know, I consider it the greatest story ever told. It's kind of 42nd Street crossed with Brigadoon. It just – how do I – you know, there's so much to talk about. I don't want to go so much into this one. But let's just put it this way. I had really – had a real struggle for about – Eight years, eight to ten years beforehand, trying to find a place in the theater, and my dream really wasn't um, to win a Tony or an Oscar or or anything. It was just to earn my living in the theater, and that's just to earn your living doing what you love is is one of the rarest and and I think one of the most precious things. So I, you know, I struggled. I was a solo performer. For those most of those eight years, and and I, um, just right out of after I graduated from Northwestern, and I was very very driven, very in, um, very industrious. I, uh, as a solo performer, I never could find um, an agent or a manager or anything. So I, I really just booked myself all over the country at nonprofit theaters, and and. You know, for a long time, I kind of put it down, and then looking back, I think, my God, that was pretty wonderful of a young young kid to to show up in a strange city alone and uh, make appointments with the different small nonprofit theaters and. Audition in their office, and then hopefully they would book me to come back six months later and to do the act, uh, w- which was not in drag. It was I was just dressed in kind of neutral. Well, costume.
0: let's let's talk about that. I was going to come to that in a little bit, but what was the nature of your material as a solo performer? Because there were any number of shows, at least that I found titles for. Were was it you playing characters? Was it you playing you? What what were
1: you doing? Um, I was very influenced by uh, Ruth Draper. The great you know legendary uh, monologist and um, people like Jeff Weiss who w- was an extraordinary um, solo performer it it evolved and eventually really what I ended up doing they were almost like um, screenplays where I played all the characters because they were very fluid uh, I love narrative that's I would say one of the my strongest um, Talents as a writer, and I love telling a story, and it, but it, it was so as a solo performer, it really wasn't enough for me to do just a, a, a character sketch, you know, a single person talking. I I would do these very elaborate pieces, like a, 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 um, kind of a contemporary noir piece where I played a young man whose father has been killed, and he is uh, investigating himself who. Who did it, and he didn't really know his father, and so, so I played the young man, and then all the people that he met, and and the and I did it with no um, that'd be one piece. I had an extensive repertoire, uh, and so uh, the. Illusion by the time the piece was over was that you actually had seen this whole cast of characters, even though I never changed costume or um, or had really any props, but I would play do the dialogue back and forth. You would literally play scenes with yourself. Yes, and 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 then you know often there'd be two character scene, but then at the end, let's say of that piece, I brought all the suspects in, and and so I had to play you know seven characters at the same time, and and it was a wonderful. Um, training for me as a writer because i had to learn i had to learn uh, exposition uh characterization uh, because the audience it had to be clear at all at all times and the audience had to know within seconds just where i was who i was who i was was talking to my relationship and and not and and i never wanted to be on the nose and um Hmm. make it kind of hokey so it was you know it it was a I think the lessons I learned as a solo writer performer um stood me well when I started writing ensemble pieces.
0: By starting with Vampires probably made a mistake because we started in the middle of yeah, things. So let's jump, jump back for a minute. You yeah. grew up here in New York. Mm-hmm. Your mom passed away when you were very young I and you me. were sent to live with an aunt who ultimately adopted you. Yes. Um but being here in New York City, you had access to theater and you were taken to theater pretty mm-hmm. regularly. Yes. What kind of stuff were you seeing as a kid? Were you just seeing the big musicals or, frankly, were you oh. going
1: to off-Broadway and, and things like that? Well, uh, you know, I had this extraordinary aunt, my mother's older sister, my Aunt Lillian, and she, um, she was a kind of lady who, um, she had a green thumb with um, African violets and she had a good green thumb with kids, too, and she, uh, with, both plants and children she um, had an immediate insight into you know what uh, what goes best to to make them grow you know if I'm if I can say that clearly um, so what was your and fertilizer? so well so yes well thing was that you know whatever my interest would have been she would have found a way of exploring it I think she was kind of fortunate that that I had cultural interests that matched her own but if i had been interested in sports she would have figured out a you know a way of me becoming a baseball player um so um so we she started taking me to the theater when i was about uh eight and we would you know we would go to, you know she would belong to the macy's theater club and we would get the you know, at the beginning of the season you know you, uh, you get a list of all the shows that are opening up and we'd hmm. pick and choose and so i I missed some very famous musicals, but I did. We also ended up seeing uh, some famous flops as well. But 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 she would she took me to so many things and sometimes I guess she wasn't completely clear on what it was that we were going to see. And and we, we would you know I think we saw John Osborne's Inadmissible Evidence when I was about nine, and it kind of went over my head. But you know I was I was a very um, special kid. I, I just was enraptured with the theater from earliest moment. I think the very first theater I saw, though, before my aunt started taking me to to Broadway shows, uh, my father wanted to be an opera singer. And he had a very lovely um, baritone voice, but he didn't pursue it. He had a record store in, in Yonkers. and uh, uh, But he kept his hand in doing community theater and, and singing with amateur opera companies. So he, I think the very at least the way I like to remember it. The uh, very first theatrical performance I saw was at the old Metropolitan Opera House uh, seeing um, Joan Sutherland in La Sonnambula*, And that, I think, really imprinted on me a a romantic aesthetic and a lifelong fascination with uh, 19th century theater. Hmm. It wasn't the music that that um, inspired me was the theatricality. And the style. The, the style. And and so and hmm. I, I sometimes have a the theory that, that whatever it is that we first saw uh, imprints our, our st- itself on us and our, our style as a writer particularly um, is right there. And, and certainly for me, I mean, you can see, you know, the, this... Um, fascination with the you know, bigger than life woman the painted backdrop the romanticism the plot melodrama
0: so you had all this exposure in your tween and teen years here in New York with your own I mean, even, even before yeah. but where where did the old movies come in? Because clearly another line that goes through your writing is yeah. is old films, yeah, particularly I, 40s and
1: 50s. I, I would, I mean, I would say the honestly uh, the the greater influence on me has always been theater history, even more than Hollywood, which most people wouldn't know. Because even you know the the genre pastiche plays I've done. Uh, yes they you could say it was a let's say this play the lady in question which was an anti-nazi war r- homage um was uh, based on films like escape uh, with norma sheer but since we were doing it in a theater and not on stage it was also for, for me an homage to plays like there shall be no night hmm. and uh so, you know because I'm, I wasn't doing it as a film uh I'm sort of losing track here. No, but it's it's
0: very interesting because yeah. so many people, when they write about you, talk about yeah, the Hollywood, film Hollywood, influence, Hollywood. the Hollywood influence, yeah, and as you yeah. say now, certainly we can look to a more you know to a play like Our Leading Lady, which clearly is steeped yes. in the theatrical. But lore. even
1: even um, you know Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, which was basically a, a series of uh, sketch, almost burlesque sketches, tied together with a thin narrative about these two vampire actresses who travel through time they really all three of those scenes that comprise vampire lesbians were based on more on theatrical genres the the burlesque sketch the um oh the second scene was you know i was playing the great lady of the theater who's now sort of like nazimova who's come to hollywood to make silent films there's always a theater thing and then um I guess my favorite person to to read about is Sarah Bernhardt, hmm. uh, and so one of the very early pieces that that I did with my theater company in the East Village was called um, Theodora She of Byzantium, which was uh, homage. I, I I say homage because spoof to me isn't really what I sounds kind of that you're mocking something. Um, so it was it was based on the play by sardou for bernhardt. Hmm. so after this theatrical youth
0: yeah. where you were not a performer you weren't doing show doing a lot of high school shows as Well
1: i, I, uh, I my aunt always sent me to uh, summer camps that catered to the sensitive child and so you know yeah, so. Is that the subtitle <laughs> the subtitle on their brochures well i think so i, I think that she would you know, meet some other some lady, you know, doing volunteer work, and and uh, and ask where they were sitting, and sending there, little boy, and and it was, <laughs> I think it was uh, there was always the code for you know gay kid that nobody would ever say, you know, uh, you know the, the artistic child. So one lady would say, "Oh, well, I'm sending my boy to um, Camp Lexington for the performing arts, and, <laughs> and so I would go there at Camp Catawba, you know, or um, Beginner Showcase." Uh, so yeah, so I was always going. Through these. I um, I think though I was so obsessed with being on stage that I wasn't very good as a kid. I think the the, the children who weren't so obsessive. Sometimes had more confidence. They didn't care as much. They could kind of swagger on stage, and you know. But for me, it was so hypnotic just to to be up there, to to be in this light, um, to be sort of singled out as being you know the one who's being watched. Was so overwhelming that I was very self conscious. Uh, frequently would forget my lines just because of the just the glory of just being up there, and, and I, I think I to this day, I, you know, whatever I see, if I, you know, I, I I went to see a production of Hello Dolly at the synagogue on Eighty Third Street recently, and you know, as community theater, I knew the young man who was directing it, and and I went, and and I don't even – those ladies up there somehow had a, a glow for me as well, just. Huh. Anyone on a stage, it sounds a little sappy, but but uh, um, it's been that way. So I wasn't, as a kid, I, I wanted very much to be a, a child star. Uh, I think the very first thing, audition I went to, there was a community theater production in Westchester, because my father lived in Westchester, uh, of Oliver. And I was just determined that I was going to play Oliver, and I, I thought it was just a perfect role for me. Um, and they made me audition about six times for this community theater production in, and I did not get the part but then I saw in the paper that, um, that they were casting the movie and I thought that I'd I'd show St. Mary's players and <laughs> I'd nab the film role and I went into one of those four, four quarter at the time um, photo booths and took pictures and all of her, making Oliver making Oliver faces and sent it in and, and got a letter back from the producers in England Thanking me for their my interest in the film, and uh, uh, but that they were looking for a little English boy. Now, <laughs> then I don't know if you remember, but when, after Michael Jackson died, uh, Mark, Mark Lester, Lester, the original uh, the Oliver in the movie, who took yeah. my role, um, <laughs> came forth and said that he might be the father of of um, one of Michael Jackson's children. So I, I have to think now that had I gotten that part, I might be the father of. Blanket Jackson,
0: there, but for the grace of God. And I, think and I, I wish. <laughs> I love those
1: children it. are darling kids. I, I, <laughs> I was like that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> do you still have that letter at home, framed? <laughs> your 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 letter from the praises no, of all? No, not You know what? Also, I didn't do. It's so silly. I, but also, good, it's in a way on this theme. So when I would, when my aunt would take me to all these Broadway shows, afterwards, I want. I just wanted to see the stars up close Vivian Lee I saw Tavaric and um, Carol Channing and the original Dolly and um, and I would go uh, backstage or in the alleyway and I would get all these wonderful autographs and then throw them out you know huh. maybe the next day I it was you know it wasn't about look collecting the autograph it was just that was a contact to a, a, a reason to actually see them up close hmm Pity I didn't. I? It would be a wonderful collection today. So
0: when you started thinking about college, was college clearly going to be, I'm going to college
1: to learn to be an actor? Well, that was my idea. Um, well, I went to – first, um, I went to the high school of music and art and I was an art major. I I think I would have preferred to go to performing arts high school. They were separate in those days. Uh I probably would never have gotten into perform- performing arts because I wasn't that good. Uh, but my aunt um, thought – you know, I draw very well. I always had a talent for drawing and I think she knew that my interest in theater was so overwhelming that, you know, to make me a little more well-rounded, uh, I would be an art major. Something to fall back on. Uh, yeah, she used to say peculiar things to me during my eight years eight years of terrible struggle in-, in which I had every kind of awful um, – job temp job and various things and we can talk about that a bit but um, she would sometimes say to me you're you're such a talented artist you should be a painter to fall back on it to fall back on that's harder than you know uh, being an actor and she said she'd say oh you know tony bennett sells his paintings for a lot of he's a star Uh, anyway (laughs) (laughs) so
0: school getting into and where you
1: yeah so so college Oh, I I think my dream would have been to try to get into an acting school, Um, but my my aunt wanted me to have a liberal arts education. And I I actually – I applied to all these schools where you had to audition, um, NYU and Boston University, Purchase, um, and I was rejected by all of them um I, I it makes it sound like I really was bad i got i was I was getting better, um but
0: it didn't s- doesn't but it sound like you had a lot of guidance in terms of how to repair that oh hey yeah, i
1: no, I was taking acting classes all okay. along um and I thought I had awfully good audition pieces maybe I was too gay i don't know maybe i was too i was just a little eccentric mm-hmm. um, but I, I but Northwestern, which is a fine school, there was no audition and mm-hmm. and I don't know how I got in frankly because my grades were um very mediocre and and my SAT scores were mediocre i I don't know how I slipped in except that possibly um, it might have looked good on an application that I w- had a number of interests that I wasn't just acting that I wrote and that I drew and well, I I don't know but but it was um I got into a very good school although northwestern when I was there in the um, mid 70s was going through a kind of um lean patch it had been this legendary school with because this woman alvina kraus was a um, evidently an extraordinary acting teacher and and all the famous alumni from that uh, from the 60s and 50s were all um students of alvina kraus she was long retired by the time i got to northwestern after I left, they built a whole new complex and, and I understand it's a very fine school now but it was little, little lean. I, on the other hand, um, when I got there, I – was never cast in a play, and oh, I'm sounding so pathetic here. But um, it should be inspirational to all of you listening to this. It's rags to riches, Charles. So you're who, telling the rags to riches I, story. I feel like like the loser. Yeah, well, really, you know, it's it's, and, and I got the last laugh, honey, too, because uh, no, I at school, so at Northwestern, I was really never cast in a play, and I, and I started, I had a pretty pragmatic view, being from New York and seeing Broadway shows, uh, when I would be terribly disappointed that I didn't get cast as the young juvenile. But then, after I calmed down a bit, I, I thought, oh, I guess I would have cast him too. That he's more right for the part. He, I'm too, I, you know, I'm just too complex and too androgynous and too, you know, and uh, so I actually began um, writing. Um, by senior year, I started uh, taking advantage, actually, of the liberal arts courses at Northwestern hmm. and and taking. Uh, writing classes they didn't have a playwriting uh, major and only one little playwriting course i basically created my own major there and put on got credit for writing a play got credit for putting on the play and got credit for discussing it at the end hmm
0: it's interesting that you say you know you looked at the performers once they did the show and compared it to what you thought your skills were did you have that degree of self-awareness to understand ga- gathering it. what your strengths and weaknesses ultimately were
1: I was gathering it yeah well th- at the same time you know I was becoming so comfortable with my sexuality and um, and just gaining self-awareness of my my myself and 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 a, and actually, in a way, appreciating myself in a certain sense and getting a – the other thing, too, is when I would um, come home for vacation, I started seeing more experimental theater. And the uh, mid-70s was a particular um, golden age of of experimental theater and, um, with the work of um, Richard Foreman and the performance group and um, – and Jeff Weiss, and and above all for me, Charles Ludlam, who was, for those who, who don't know, was a, a remarkable um, actor, playwright, and director who had his own company, the theatrical, the ridiculous theatrical company, and his own theater for many years of it. And I mean, he really was kind of a throwback to the great actor managers of the past. When I First saw him perform in a play called *Eunuchs of the Forbidden City*. I've never quite recovered. Uh, it just was all the things that I was interested in. He was doing, and and that and, and the revelation that uh, a theatrical experience for an artist um, didn't have to be the um, the traditional comedies and musicals and, that I'd. Hmm. Grown up watching, but it could be anything you choose it to be. Well, as you've already spoken about,
0: you got out of school and you were writing these solo pieces for yourself. One of the things that Ludlum did was created this company, Mm -hmm. The Ridiculous Company, and there was to a large degree – a repertory company. And oh, oh totally. Yes, he, yes he, he was always the star. But he wrote but roles for there the there were various, all of those people yes. like Ethel Eichelberger mm-hmm. and of course Everett Quinton and Black, like Black Susan and – Vola Paschalinski. and, Lepesulinski. Lepesulinski and yeah. so it was on. the
1: same ensemble. That was wonderful to watch. So
0: when did you make the decision to stop just writing for Charles Bush to play all the roles and start thinking about writing – for other people and how did you find those other people to write for?
1: Okay. Uh, well, first, in, after I, I graduated Northwestern in 76 and I just wasn't ready to come right back home to New York City and just start the career. I, uh, but, but in, in um, my senior year of college, I, I wrote and directed and Produced and starred in a, in a very Ludlumish play, and uh, you know, and I performed the lead in, in drag, and and it felt felt good. Felt like oh, this is kind of who I am. But you know, I was very influenced by Charles Ludlum. So then, um, when I, I decided to stay in Chicago two more years, and I and I started oh, I was I got into a couple nonprofit. Ch- Show plays and and in uh, this one play I was in I started chatting with all the people in the dressing room and and saying that I had a fantasy of starting a theater company kind of on the lines of the ridiculous theatrical company Uh, so all these um, people jumped aboard in in Chicago and we I wrote this campy piece called Myrtle Pope the story of a woman possessed it was kind of like Madame X and, and we did it so I had this little company very briefly in Chicago but it turned out very badly and the um, actors, although I, you know the, I, it was clear from the beginning what the point was. they sort of seemed to resent me and, and didn't want to just do plays with me as a star and, and uh, writing them. So I decided at that point to come back to New York, became a solo performer. Basically in the spirit of, well, I don't need anybody else. I'll just, you know, just be a solo performer. And it was also easier to try to mount a play with just yourself and finding the money to put on with a cast. Or, um, but after about eight years, um, I was at a very – I was kind of at a plateau that I, I was very encouraged. I mean I would, I would get – I had a kind of a circle of – a circuit – of theaters around the country that i kept returning to and and i would get really uh, rave reviews in in major papers like the washington post and the san francisco chronicle and indianapolis star or whatever. and um and i could even sell out on a rainy thursday in santa cruz but i couldn't earn a living hmm. i didn't have any management so there would be those Times between engagements that I had to fill in, and I was a quick sketch portrait artist. I was a, um, a receptionist in a zipper factory. Um, you know, I w- worked for a sports handicapping service on the f- telephone. I mean, just you know, I paid my dues, dear. And so, uh, um, at a certain point, though, in, in 1984. I, dis- I was very discouraged. It seemed like there was longer – I wasn't really progressing and, and there were longer periods in between engagements. It seemed like I was more office temp than, than performance artist. And just at that – at my really lowest ebb, I, uh, a friend of mine uh, invited me to see her do her act way in the farthest reaches of the East Village in Alphabet City where – only the mentally deranged would would venture in those days, and there it was all just bombed out, kind of blocks of burnt out buildings and crack vials on the street. It was really creepy, and but it, there, there was, it was the last place where you could get cheap rent. So naturally, artists started um, converging there, and there'd be little pockets of of the interesting art gallery or the or the strange performance art club. So I, I went to this, to this place called the Limbo Lounge, which was a um, storefront on Avenue, near Avenue C. And, and I was so enraptured with the whole ambiance, this kind of gay punk crowd. I, I always say that it, it reminded me of what I'd read about Berlin in the 20s. Hmm. There was something just kind of wonderfully glamorous about the decadent um, raffishness of it. So immediately that after I saw um, Bina's show, her name was Bina Sharif, is my friend. We, um, um, I went, I found the owner, this kid who was who owned the Limbo Lounge, uh, and and he just, it was very easy. He just looked at the calendar and booked me to do a play there. Uh, three weeks later, hmm. and so I, I, and I knew that I did not want to do my act. I wanted. to do you know that was rather severe, and it's you know I was dressed in black and just all alone i I wanted to do something decadent and and outrageous and i 'd read about oh people like Lindsay Kemp, you know the British mime who did these very decadent performances of pieces based on genet and and the idea the fantasy really was that it would be some very dramatic uh, decadent piece where we'd all be nude and covered in blood and all that. But I, I just – I write in old-fashioned comedy rhythms and it turned out to be very funny. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just wrote this very short sketch. I mean it probably was about a half hour and, oh, I needed a title. And my friend Ed, who's an um, advertising copywriter, he's, he's the one who just said, oh, why don't you call it Vampire Lesbians of Sodom? I thought oh, that will do. And I wrote it real. I mean I say 45 minutes, maybe, but really you know, in a matter of mm-hmm. – ah, Hours or a day or so, just while I was in office temp, because it was just I needed the lines to say. I wasn't trying to write a play as such, just something to do. And I, um, um, and my my roommate uh, Ken Elliott w- had been directing my my act, and he um, he finally he was from a very very fine family in um, the Midwest, and oh he he just had was so discouraged trying to build a directing career that he had applied and was accepted to Columbia law School and his parents were so thrilled and I said to him I said well just direct just direct the vampire lesbians of Sodom in this bar for me and what a jazzy way to end your directing career and we needed a cast and I, I just um, asked just people that I'd gathered over my life my friend Andy Halliday who I knew from summer camp who'd been my friend and and who'd been very discouraged in trying to get her career going and um, T- Teresa Aceves who I met in D.C. and just all you know just, oh boy Arnie Kladner who was um, a, a magician at the Renaissance Fair when I worked there and uh, Bobby Carey who was a desk clerk at, at Helmsley Palace but was very beautiful and uh, we, so we thought oh come on join join. it was like the Wizard of Oz in a way that I just sort of collected hmm. these misfit people and so you launched the show. We at did it for really we, the limbo, so, Lounge, so, yes, and, we, and and you created there was, there the was no theater rage. in limbo. Well, there company. was no, yeah, but it was just for the weekend, you know. And I thought I'm not going to. I don't want to be a female impersonator. This is just, you know. But I, I thought oh, I'll play. The, I'll play the the vampire actress in drag, and that'll be kind of fun for the weekend. Do something, be sort of Sarah Bernhardt for the weekend, uh, and you know, because I had played in my solo work. I played men and women, but the female characters in some ways were, were the best. Uh, but in, and it was nice actually finally having other actors who could play the roles that I wasn't really all that interested hmm. in playing. So how long did you do the show at the Limbo Lounge? Well, you know, we were all – most of us were um, equity. So to do it, we had to do it as an equity showcase Oh, essentially – so we Which stretched is very that, limited. Yeah, it's very limited, and um, you know we stretched it out as far as we could. But but then you know this well, we were just, it was going to be just this weekend, uh, and, and it was so much fun that we all said, oh let's do a second weekend. Uh, so we, we booked that and, that, and that's where actually Julie Halston came into it because the actress who um, originally was playing the other vampire lesbian. It had enough of one weekend was fine with no bathroom and, you know, it was so primitive. She, she just had enough. And so I was desperate and I asked every actress I could think of. My, my own sister turned me down. The last person on my list was, oh, God, that, that blonde girl that I met in San Francisco who wasn't terribly funny. But, you know, as fact, she was terrible. But she was kind of – Outrageous! So what the hell? So so, I asked her to do it. And she was working on Wall Street and uh, so she agreed. And, and then we became best friends and she became my – at the risk of sounding terribly pretentious, my muse. Well, it's funny. I was going to ask you but since you bring it up. On the one hand, it seemed like you were your
0: own muse because yes, I am so like I am my own wife, well that, I am my own I, muse. I meant to make that joke. <laughs> I actually thought of it this morning, but but I'm glad you took it. Um, <laughs> but Julie was a partner in crime. You know, it, it yeah. seemed that you were simultaneously writing for yourself and for Julie. Well, well I've been mean writing for this
1: whole little group. Mm-hmm. You know, well well we you know we did these couple weekends, then Michael Limbo, who ran the Limbo Lounge. Not his real name, one presumes. No, funny (laughs) funny about that. uh, He was, you know, a very cool young guy, and he loved what we did for those two weekends. So he suggested that we do plays regularly there. So then we came up with the name Theater in Limbo, and we just started doing a play every three weeks. And I was just writing these – they were about 45 minutes long. And so I had this ensemble without even trying. And and Ken got really into it and decided to put off um, law school, which I'm sure his parents were thrilled with. And uh, so it suddenly got kind of exciting. And we just – and I started writing for each of these people. And, and it was – what was quite fantastic was that – you know, because we hadn't cast it like we hadn't really cast it. Just we, well, you want you want to do a show with me? You want to do a show with me? What are you What are you doing that weekend? But each person, we actually had the an app perfect setup for a nineteenth century troupe with the leading lady, leading man, the soubrette, the um, villain, the character man, uh, the ingenue, and 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 each one of these friends of mine. Who had all been either either they weren't in the theater at all, or had been completely discouraged from in their attempts at a career. All had this um, what we used to call their trip. Each one of them had, had a very eccentric personality, and 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 it made it rather easy to write for them. There was nobody who was just kind of bland. They, you know, um, they all had a, had a look and a um, and a vocal. Interesting vocal quality and, and, a, and, a, and a definite personality. And I, I began to feel like I, I was the um, uh, head of an old-time movie studio with my contract players. <laughs> and the challenge, after I started writing all these parts for these same group of eight – there are eight of us. Uh, the challenge was to uh, write roles that enabled each one of them to do their trip – but at the same time stretch it just a bit you can't right, just because right because you didn't you, want your you studio to typecast every yeah, and you can't we well, they were typed but even within that type you know even in the old movie studios you know they would, some gable would be typed but occasionally they would push them a little further this way mm-hmm. you know off off casting I think they called it yeah so so now with Julie at first she she just um, wasn't all that special but on stage, but her offstage personality was so outrageous, and the way she, with her Comac Long Island accent. And she's so funny, and just to this day, I mean, she just I, I, it cracks me up. I, I, I find her this is the funniest person in the world. And but you know, just her t- telling stories about her mother and all, you know, and and so I, <laughs> I said, you know, this this is what you should, be. this is who you are, this is. You know, but I think she was af- afraid of her personality, and so she would go on t- her few attempts at doing a, an act. When I met her, she sort of smoothed everything out and just was kind of the, sort of a nice lady. So she, I, yeah, kind of gave her permission to to be herself on stage and start writing her persona into these plays, and we fed each other. Where. She kind of found herself and then she provided me with a wonderful comic character to to write. Hmm. Now,
0: interestingly, when Vampires was done at the Provincetown Playhouse, it was a commercial production. You found $55,000 to have it go up. So in an odd reverse, it was after Vampires that you started to work with, it seems in particular, the WPA Theater. Did a bunch of yeah. your
1: shows? Yeah, well, we decided to, you know, um, with at the Limbo Lounge. We very quickly it was just a matter of of months. We developed with just a, a, a really rabid um, fan base it, people. Just it was it, we were in the right place at the right time for yeah. one thing, and and uh, there were all these big um, magazines like People Magazine and New York Magazine were doing pieces on this decadent performance art scene, and we were always included because the titles were so outrageous. And so it became clear that, that particularly when we did Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, we were squeezing 250 people into this tiny club, and, and they were reciting the dialogue with us. And so Ken uh, said, we really should do something with this. And, and he figured it all out and came up with a crazy, insanely low budget that we allow us just to open and we got he got us the Provincetown Playhouse and and then we got a rave review in the Times and the show ran five years and at that moment from that moment on I I could earn a living in the theater,
0: But what was interesting is that you had a commercial success, yes. however it was achieved, yeah. but then moved into starting shows very often yes. in, in established yes. not-for-profits, yes. which then again – because it was a period where the WPA yeah. in particular was having great success with mm-hmm. commercial transfer. Yes. Certainly Little Shop of Horrors yes, had preceded yes. well, we, by a few yes, years. Well, well
1: you know, we had done two shows at that point. Um, we had also done um, Psycho Beach Party and that – that ran about a year. And um, and then Kyle Rennick, who was artistic director of the WPA, really liked our our shows. And we had dinner with him and he said he'd love to, for us to do a play at the WPA. And uh, on the spot, I was just trying to think of an idea. And so um, I, I had appeared at a big benefit and – And had a a gown made that was uh, this 1940s, very kind of Catherine Hepburn in Philadelphia story type gown. And, you know, I I, I wore it for this one event and it was just hanging in the closet. So I said, well, what about 1940s um, 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 anti-Nazi war melodrama? And Kyle loved those movies. So I said, oh, let's do that. And then I wrote the play. And he gave us the date first. And then I wrote the play to to hit the date. But you wrote it for the date and the dress, uh-huh. and Amazing. the cast. The date, the dress, and the cast. because <laughs> uh-huh. it was the same, of course, my same group. So yes, that established relationship with the WPA, and I did a number of shows there: Red Scare on Sunset, Queen Amarantha, a, a solo show flipping my wig. That was that was great. And now, I also I've been very lucky. I don't know today. I'm not sure if I was starting out today whether what would happen to me because. Um, in the '80s and early '90s, um, it wasn't that difficult to transfer something from a nonprofit to a commercial production. So, to a commercial off Broadway, commercial off Broadway, yeah. pro- off broad. Yes, that's a very good point. And so, uh, every every single one of our shows, we. Transferred commercially, mm-hmm. and and today I doubt Vampire Lesbians would have transferred because it's so expensive. I mean, and each one of those shows, it was interesting over the course of between eighty five and ninety one, went up radically. Ex- the budget went up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, well, I'm just going to sort. Of, I, I believe let's say so. It was fifty five thousand for Vampire Lesbians, which was of course ludicrously low, but whatever. But then I think Psycho Beach Party might have been two hundred. Thousand, lady in question was about four hundred fifty thousand, <laughs> and that was in eighty
0: nine. You said earlier in this conversation that when you were doing the early versions of vampires, you were like, I didn't really. You, you said something to the effect of, I didn't really want to do drag, but I just sort of did it. Was there a conscious decision at a certain point that you were always going to be your leading lady?
1: Well, you know, this goes back to a lot of a, really a, kind of almost the theme of our conversation. In a sense, I think in a career for a career in the theater, as both, particularly as actor, but even as a writer, it's all about self knowledge and being honest with yourself. And and who who are you? Who are you? And and when you know who you when you're confident confident of who you are, and and then. I think you're ahead of the game, and you can try to sell yourself in a sense. But you can't sell your product unless you know what it is, and that's very difficult. And in a certain sense, it's a lifelong process. I think we're continually all, all our, our whole careers, our art and artistic life is is a, a, a search for um, identity. And, and but but I think you need to start off with that you're kind of ahead of the game. Um I'm so losing I'm, I'm getting so pontificating I lose my train of thought. Um But your oh, point did you decide it was drag, just yeah, fun? Yeah. So, 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 so yeah, well first it was just kind of we we're gonna do it for that weekend. But then you know really what I I was kind of finding myself as a leading lady and you know doing all these plays at the Limbo Lounge, and then doing it off Broadway and and I started to realize that actually in my act when I would play the men and women just a, very occasionally a critic would bring it up and and I would be upset at the time, but then I started thinking you know maybe they really were they were on my secret that you know in the gothic Irish gothic love story solo piece, that maybe I actually was a little better as the when I played the mysterious hmm. Countess on the Hill, that perhaps my performer's imagination was more um, was was struck more than when I was playing the old Irish fisherman, or the, or even the you know the young Heathcliff kind of hero. It's somehow it's, it, you know, it's a it's a profound thing, and it's hard for me to, to you know we don't really have enough time to really go into it. But just I've gradually it's taken me years, in fact, to get past just the glib soundbite answer of of you know why is it that so much of my creativity is is based on playing these female characters. And I I think, yes, a great fascination with actresses of the past, but uh, I'm sure there's a deeper sense. You know, the women in my family were fascinating, and, you know, both my aunt, who was, you know, this very noble, um, elegant, uh, complex woman, and then the, the Ghost of my mother, who was so present in our lives, uh, who was fragile and a r- terribly romantic figure to me. You know, I don't know. You know, hmm. all that. I'm sure. Somehow, I'm uh, I'm working something out. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, you would not be the first writer to uh, yeah. performer to work stuff out on stage. Mm. We've talked about so many of these shows and unfortunately we're skipping past some but I want to go to to Allergist's mm-hmm. wife because that certainly was a change yes now how much of it was you wanting to write a different kind of play how much of it was Manhattan Theater Club offered you an opportunity and you Felt for their audience, it needed yeah. to be a different kind of
1: play. Well, you know, it's it's always a mixture of all those, those yeah. elements. I keep going. Sometimes when I, I think I know where, when I when I just when I think I know where the genesis of that play came from, then I realize oh, it goes back further than that. It goes back further than that. Uh, so the, we're strip mining this kind of yeah. I, I realize oh wait a minute, maybe it was because you know uh, Julie Halston and I had a big fight. You know, and there was a period where we were barely speaking and uh, and I thought, uh, you know, I'll show everybody if I can write a, you know, a raging, you know, Upper West Side Jewish lady for Julie. I don't need her. I'll write it for myself, you know. Hmm. And, and I did a solo piece, a short solo piece playing this kind of lady. And it was very much a Julie piece I would have written for Julie. And then later we came closer than ever. But at the time we were kind of on the outs and then um, – uh, it was a solo piece, and then it worked so well. It's a short, ten minute piece. I used to do it every single benefit till I think people were rolling their eyes. Uh, but I thought, oh, this is a wonderful milieu, and I know so well. This, you know, gr- growing up um, in New York, you know, with a J- Jewish family, uh, I know these ladies, and although not my aunt who was from the Midwest originally, but I just know the milieu so mm-hmm. well. So I thought I need to write a. This is a, as a full-length play. I think I really could write that and want to tell that story. It took me a while to figure out what's how to use that character. Then um, – oh, oh, basically I, I wrote the book to a musical called The Green Heart for Manhattan Theatre Club. And I um, just – Lynn Meadow and I um, just hit it off in a major way and uh, she uh, didn't direct that piece but she was the um, – yeah, you know, the artistic director of MTC, and and we we just uh, clicked. You know, I, I just love her, and um, so she said, "Oh, I'd uh, love to to produce your next play." Hmm. So I thought, hmm, I thought well, you know, that's a wonderful opportunity, and and I did think, okay, their their um, subscription base may not be ready for Vampire Lesbians Part Two. So I, I thought, oh, this is a perfect opportunity for me to work on. This play um, with this character, who at the time was called Miriam Passman, it was a great opportunity. So, it, you know, so it's, it's it's a confluence of of um, opportunity. But what struck me in reading
0: um, the introduction to an anthology of your plays mm-hmm. is um, you made the comment that it was taking this character and not setting her in what many people think Allergist's Wife is, which is Sort of even a, th- a bit of a throwback right. Broadway comedy, but suddenly putting her in the middle of a pinter or all comedy. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I was trying to come up with a. I had this wonderful character and this milieu that I knew, uh, but I it, it was tricky trying to come come up with a plot to support her. You know, I, I, it was easy to make it very very sort of TV sitcom, and I and I wanted it to do more than that. I. Didn't, I uh, and I, I actually went to see the, that fabulous revival of A Delicate Balance with Elaine Stritch and... The London Center Harris. production in yeah, about 96. Yeah, and it was just, oh, it was yeah. just brilliant. And, and, and I loved it so much and, and it occurred to me, I thought well, it might be sort of funny and interesting to take, take these these comic characters and, and, and put them in a rather enigmatic Albie or, or Pinter play like old times. Hmm. So that was kind of one of the one of the things that, it, that t- turns but into. But it's, it's own, not the expected turn, turns into source own, of an yeah. animal, yeah. Hmm. And then then Linda Lavin was a big inspiration for me. Um, while I was writing the play, uh, I saw her in um, Death Defying Acts, and immediately I thought, oh well, she she should play this character, and I couldn't get her voice out of my head. Then when I gave the play to Lynn Meadow. She said, well, let's do a reading right away and who's your fantasy casting for Marjorie? I said, oh, Linda Lavin. So let's get her and Linda did it.
0: But was that the first time you were writing a leading lady part that wasn't necessarily for yourself? guess so. And when did you make the decision or was the decision made for you that it wasn't going to be you?
1: Oh, never, never. Like for one – second occurred to me not, huh. no i know people don't believe it not not for a second did i think i was going to play that part no because it was not that it was a different genre it was not this, the the wife is not a um an homage to a to um a pinter play it is kind of like a pinter play but with different kind of characters but but even th- <laughs> even that, that you know that's you know, t- putting the Pinter Alby thing, making too much. But importance it wasn't a it. satire. Was, it wasn't yeah, a spoof. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't
0: yeah, an yeah. homage or any of these no, was, words that get leveled. It was
1: its own um, comedy, just comedy. So yes, so that's why it, you know I, I tell you it's funny. Sometimes I feel like this great big hypocrite, but I, I but I know what I'm doing. Um, you know, I've I've had to to fight sometimes. since when I wanted to play anti mame. And then I did. I've done it a number of times. But at first, when I wanted to do it, the estates for Lawrence and Lee uh, said absolutely no man can play this part. Hmm. And I had to go through all sorts of hoops. And I, you know, and I wrote to the heirs and explained really who I was and what I was doing. So it all worked out. Um, but then I've, I've actually, you know, gotten requests. For productions, I want to do the Allerger's Wife with a man in in one of the roles, and apps apps you know, it's absolutely not. You know, cease and desist. You know, mm. um, because the implication is uh, the implication is that everything I write is of the same style, and it's not. You know, Allerous Wife is a very different play from the lady in question or Gidget Go Psychotic, or whatever you know, Psycho mm. like Beach Party.
0: It's funny you mentioned the Mame, and we talked earlier about Charles Ludlam because. One of the rare appearances Ludlam made in a play not of mm-hmm. his own devising was when he played Hedda Gabler. Yeah. Um, you <laughs> chose Mame <laughs> or uh, Anti-Mame. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, just anti-mame. It's, it's interesting. because in, that's a couple of like, other things I've did. Yeah. Um,
1: just very really in in, in past twenty five years, I think I can count on just a couple fingers the times that I've been in plays that I didn't write. I just you know once in a great while somebody asked me and oh i was in a production of the maids at the classic stage company that was one of my more egregious failures um and um and then um oh i was in a production of little me in in birmingham michigan Hmm. with and uh i played older bell and since i was over the title they really tried to i we had a very very accommodating younger bell who didn't mind that i ended up a lot of her solos became duets but there there was a little girl in the um, young lady in, who had the smallest role in the ensemble uh, a little blonde girl who uh, had one line of dialogue and got a huge laugh on it, it was- Kristen Chenoweth.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there you go.
1: You never know.
0: <laughs> Glad I didn't cut that line. <laughs> Since we're talking about musicals, you mentioned um, The Green Heart. You have done the books for a few musicals. Uh, Ankles Away Up <laughs> at Good Speed. Um, yeah. Taboo, certainly <laughs> yeah, yeah, on yeah. Broadway. Yes. Um, a tour of House of Flowers. Um, I, I haven't had great luck in the musical stage. Is there a desire – for you to do that? Is that a form that appeals to you now that you've done several
1: well, regardless of what Well, it seems like a natural. I mean, it always seems like a natural for me because, for me, you know, I write good comic dialogue and, you know, and 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 narrative and, you know, and it would seem a natural fit. Um, actually, The Green Heart, I think, was actually a very good show and and um, uh, we're sort of hoping that it may have another incarnation and um, but, um, I don't know, and then, Actually, I did, I wrote the book too. Or, you know, I was involved in a musical called Swing Time Canteen which actually ran ran about a year. Um, and then Taboo, um, Rosie O'Donnell uh, uh, came to me, and I didn't really know her, but sh- um, she really loved The Allergist's wife, and she had this idea for this show in London that um, she had seen and wanted to do on Broadway. And um, I don't know at first when she mentioned our first meeting, I. I know warning bells went off because the idea was that it was a play that had another book already in London and she wanted a whole new story. And I I just hearing about it, I thought, hmm, I don't know if coming up with a new story with an existing score, is it ever going to be an organic thing? But she, Rosie, is very seductive and she said, well, just come with me to London on the Concord uh, this weekend. I'm going to say no. So I went and, and, and I liked her so much and we had – Things in common, you know, our mother dying when we were young, and and I, I just I liked her, and and she, you know, that show she was so so unfairly just mocked, and and uh, and I wonder if there's there's rarely rarely been a major Broadway musical where the the motives were so pure, hmm. I mean, so idealistic. I mean, Rosie absolutely, I think because she you know her career had been in in the you know the stand up and talk show that she just longed had a great longing to do something that she she felt was purely artistic you know when she wanted to design the poster cuz she you know she's a visual artist as well she does that and she it was just and she was willing to put up all her own money just to have this experience of doing something she she so admired boy george when she was a kid you know and he symbolized Lot to her, and I mean, it really, was this, this very pure thing? And um, and there was something very beautiful about that, and and she was so treated so uh, mercilessly. Hmm. But let
0: me ask you, when we we're about musicals, it, it in the case now, Springtime Time Canteen was that using period music?
1: Yeah, I was using um, yeah music. From so the what's 40s. interesting
0: is that you're using period music and swing time. Canteen in taboo, you're you're radically revising a, a show where the score was written to another book. Yeah. By and large, yeah. certainly yeah. angles away yeah. was old material. House of Flowers, House of Flowers, same thing. So the the question is beyond perhaps more life for Green Heart. Is it really that you need a chance to write a
1: musical from the ground up? Well, you know, one thing I must say, I I take it as a a bit of a failure of, of imagination on my part that in all these years, I've never come up with an idea of my own for for a musical. I've never seen a book or a movie that that oh, I'd love to adapt that. I I've never I just have never come up with an idea, and so consequently, in all these all those projects. I was brought in. It was somebody else's idea, and they brought me in I, I I think my strengths as a writer are just my own imagination. I think I'm not sure that adaptation is really my strong suit. I know i've I know writers who really are just brilliant at adaptation and maybe even better at adaptation than they are on their own, just coming up with their own original idea. And, and I,
0: yeah, and no temptation to adapt any of your own, because certainly something I would think, "Psycho Beach Party." Well, would a lot of people. Some well, more number
1: of people keep writing to me, to me, at wanting to, young young um, composers wanting the rights to that. But I tell you, it's done so often in in um, regional theater and and colleges as it is that I don't want to screw <laughs> it up. You know, I, I kind of like those royalties as as is. Uh, I yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I just say no. And I never, i tell you the truth, honestly, uh, you know, <laughs> should I say this? Oh, just, you know, I've been offered numerous times to write books to musicals, and, and I always say no. And then, then I think, oh, have I, have I um, passed up good opportunities? Nothing I've ever said no to has ever seen the light of day. So I can't say, oh, I turned down Grey Gardens. But you might have
0: if Charles Bush. I doubt it. it. (laughs) Before we run out of time, I want to ask you about your most recent work. And I I feel like we've had to skip over so many pieces. But uh, The Divine Sister, which Mm -hmm. was done um, earlier this year at Theatre for the New City. Now, you've had your work done on Broadway, all kinds of places. Theatre for the New City is often a place where – very early career artists to <laughs> get their work on for the first time. That's divine. So so first of all, why would you take a new work there?
1: Okay. Uh, well, first of all, uh, I've maintained a relationship with Theater for New City for uh, at least 30 years now. Uh, it was the very first theater – very first play of mine done in New York was a, a terribly pretentious um, – Serious drama that I, that I wrote, and, and, and uh, Crystal Field, who runs that theater, gave me an opportunity. I was completely unknown. Is this
0: before Our Mother's Eyes? Yes, yes. And 1982.
1: dreadful play, my humorless play where I played identical twin brothers who are incestuous. And so it was, it was kind of my attempt at writing a Peter Schaffer play when I was in my 20s so uh anyway, but I start a relationship there and and I do my Christmas show every year for one i do one performance of this Christmas show we do every year and uh i just and then and and it's a wonderfully safe haven for me it's so unpretentious and and uh we did Shanghai moon there for the first originally and and so it seems like every um I don't know, every couple of years well, or you know maybe every eight years or so. I get, I have this great need to do something just for purely the fun of it, and I sometimes like. I think we all get re- can get rather grim and just uh, pursuing our careers in this very determined, humorless manner. Um, and I, I was feeling that I was losing a bit of of just the joy of performing and and putting on a play. So I, I, I wrote. This, it's very, it's very much a throwback to my earlier work. Um, it's a homage to Hollywood religiosity. Just about every movie that Hollywood ever made, t- taking religious religion rather seriously. So it's, it's you know, the Nun's Story and Come to the Stable and uh, going through Agnes of God all the way to uh, the Da Vinci Code and it takes place in Pittsburgh in 1966 and I'm um, a very lovely and embattled mother superior. So so we you know we decided to Carl Andrus who's been my collaborator for over 10 years now um, he decided we were going to put it on and and we produced ourselves uh, a theater for New city and invited no critics because we wanted just, just just no pressure we Got didn't even get the biggest theater at Theater for New City because they have just, they have a number of them but we chose the seventy seat theater we sold out the whole thing on Facebook oh yeah you were a hot ticket yes and uh, and it was just it was absolutely the most perfect therapeutic experience for me to just perform for an audience that's come there just because they really want to see. This play and see me and and so so that was, in a way it was in and it ended itself I mean that was it i I thought I've kind of gotten what I need out of it um but then um uh Daryl Roth, who's been my benefactress for the past ten years and has just been just an amazing um I hate that word amazing her base amazing now uh just she's been an angel to me, uh, you know. She's produced and made possible almost everything I've done in the past ten years, and on film and in theater. And so she said she would produce it, and uh, and now I'm so excited about it. I I'm truly, because tr- I, I I sometimes get a little I don't know uh, I can I can just get kind of Fabishna face <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> and, you know, and 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 uh, yeah, and and it's. It's I sometimes just lose. I don't know. I feel like I okay. I'll I'll do it. It's I, I get pushed along. Other people kind of push me into things. But I, I'm truly excited about putting on this play again.
0: So we will have a vision of the nuns yes, yet yes. yet That's, again. And a
1: nun's habit is, of course, the most flattering costume anyone can ever wear. It covers up everything you don't like. But you know, we're as in the movies. I love. Um, our nuns wear uh, very large eyelash, false eyelashes and, uh, and beautiful makeup.
0: <laughs> well, we will look forward to the divine sister. And as I said at the beginning, the 25th
1: anniversary of the well, you know main else? debut. You know what else is happening to oh. me. That's very exciting. I just thought about it. Um, well, um, my birthday is August 23rd. And, um, the um, Gay and Lesbian Center of New York, which is really a wonderful service organization, uh, they want to celebrate my birthday and and also t- the 25th anniversary of Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. And, and so uh, they're doing this big event f- for me and, uh, and we're going to show this – they're going to screen this wonderful documentary that was made about me a few years ago um, called The Lady in Question is Charles Bush. And then uh, we're going to do a Q&A and then a little preview of The Divine Sister. And, and it's, uh, it's so it's going to be at the Gay and Lesbian Center on August 23rd and it's awfully nice. Well,
0: it sounds wonderful yeah. and we'll look forward to it. And Charles Bush, thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Tim Whitney. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio with the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online on demand for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing Programming, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization. We hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.